I want you to turn to two verses, Hebrews 12 and John 16. We're still talking about overcomers. We're just running back and looking at some things that tell us what overcomers are, what they do, how they do it, and so forth. Tonight, I want to talk about the overcomer's joy. The overcomer's joy. And you know, when I'm speaking about an overcomer, I'm really talking about a Christian who lives faithfully with God. Because that's the person who does overcome. What makes him faithful? Well, let's find out because that's where the joy is. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us. Like this, this is how we do that, looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then in John chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus talks to his disciples about what's going to happen to them in the world, he said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. Now, in the world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Now, let's put those two verses together and draw a few things out of it. In the world, there's going to be adversity. Right? Didn't Jesus promise us that if you live the way he wants you to live, it will cause adversity and trouble to come to you? You'll be marked. You'll have to make decisions that people who won't make decisions think you're a little strange. That's part of it. All that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I mean, it's the way it works. So he says, now, in the world, you're going to have trouble. But now, I want you to have peace in the world. In fact, the peace that we can't figure out, a peace that is beyond the mental abilities of man to understand. He said, I'm giving that kind of peace to you. Even though in the world you're going to have trouble, tribulation. But hey, be of good cheer. He said, I have overcome the world. So in the face of adversity, do that. We look at Jesus which the Bible tells us is how we get motivated ourselves. If we are motivated, we don't just study some book and do some number one, two, three, and four, and if we practice that, we'll make it. He says, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter or the finisher of our faith. said, who for the joy that was set before him, his whole motivation for the way he lived, the whole reason for his coming to this world in the first place. I mean, what compelled him to live and say what he did and said? He said, for the joy that was set before him, it cost him everything. He had to endure a cross, despising the shame. And he said he made it. You know, we're strange people. When you... 
when you begin to compare us with people in the world or with just religious people, we are different. We're strange. We accept the fact that not only in the world will we have to make hard decisions and right decisions, but we're told to endure hardness, not try to get around it, but endure it. We're told that uh, we're to count it all joy when we encounter difficulties and troubles, not to complain and mope and be negative. Just rejoice, count it all joy. Fact of the matter is, you know very few people that do that. You hardly, you know, most anybody in the world because if if you don't sit around and mope about your problems or complain or speak fearfully about what's coming in the world or what you've heard, you're out of touch. And yet you're in the same world they're in. You heard the same things. You're affected by the same feelings. And yet you made a choice that's different from the world. You begin to rejoice. Praise the Lord. Just another opportunity to demonstrate and prove what I truly believe. We're different. We're different than other people. We're supposed to be. We're Christians. Church doesn't make us different. Choices and faith is what makes us different. We walk through our trials. We don't avoid them. We just walk through them. We refuse the world. We separate ourselves from the world. These are things that people talk about when they talk about you. And with healing and health, you choose to trust the Lord. And, and that's so different from a, a sick and sorry and grieving, fearful world. You're so different. If you live this way, if you're overcoming the tendency to draw back and get away from all this, if you're hanging in there and you're pressing forward, you're really different. I mean, you really... And truly are. See, our text said that Jesus in this world, he rejected the world. It was offered to him in Matthew chapter 4. He despised the shame of the cross, but he went to the cross. He did all of those kind of things. He was rejected by man. He had no friends. I mean, he was scorned, scoffed at. God in a body, in a human flesh was so despised by the world that they hated him. I mean, the people probably that heard him, some of them wound up probably hating him. He said he was going to do this, or they heard he was going to do this, and he didn't do it, and he deceived us. Christians talk like that about Christian preachers. Yeah, you know, we heard all that stuff, and, well, you know, I didn't see any of it come to pass, and blah, 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 blah. But the Bible says, doing all of that, who for the joy that was set before him, and we think as Christians, what was so powerful about what he saw or what he knew about something that was called it joy? What was the joy that was set before Jesus that would cause him to go through all of this stuff and die the way he died? And it's, it's a simple thing, and I'll, I'll end the message with this tonight. The joy of the Lord was accomplishing for us, on our behalf, salvation and redemption. It's the only reason he did it. God wants to save lost people. Everybody in this earth as a, as a human being had gone astray. There was nobody worthy of being able to die for somebody else in order to secure their, their salvation. The only one that could was Jesus. 
and he was tempted in all points like we are, the same kind of things that you are tempted with, he was too. He was in a body just like you're in a body. He felt things the way you feel things. Weariness and all of that, plus the mental things about rejection. Even in the garden, we saw him in the garden and said, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I didn't come here to escape trouble so I could triumph over trouble like that. I came here to, to do one thing, to save Tom Hamilton or Joe Smith or whoever you are. I came here to save them. And in order to do that, I have to live on a certain way that is, is apart from sin so that God accepts my life as a suitable sacrifice on the behalf of other people's sins. And no man could do that. There was not a man found. Again, all we like sheep, there's not a single righteous man on the face of the earth. No man was, no man could be. God said, let me give you a law. If you can live according to this law, you'll be a righteous man. My righteous standards is the way I want you to live. And everybody broke it. Everybody failed. People are still trying to live by it. And they're still failing. And man had to just drop his hands at his sides and in a helpless confession, I can't do all of this. We're all doomed because the very thing that made us righteous was designed to make a man righteous slew us. The law, which was good, was my downfall. He said, I was alive once without the law in Romans 9. He said, I was alive once without the law. Then the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. A walking dead man. And there was nothing I could do to save myself. But God so loved the world, and he loved it like this. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, only unique one, one of a kind. Nobody else is like this. He sent his only unique begotten son to this world on a mission to do one thing, to live above sin so that at the end a sinless man could offer himself without spot unto God on the behalf of sinful man. And only he could do it. And now, folks, this is how God loved us. I'm talking about the dedication of a life at the expense of all pleasures, living in such a way that he must not and he did not sin. And he overcame. The Bible said in John 16, he said, be of good cheer. Rejoice and take courage while you're in this vile world that's just tearing people apart. I overcame it. In the same circumstances you're in, the same flesh you're in, the same temptations you face, I face the same thing. You, I know what you're going through. I've been there. I overcame all of that. And he said, you rejoice and be of good cheer because of that. Now, I know you know this, but let me go through it again because I think it's very important. Before we get to the joy part, what is really actually overcoming all about. What does it mean to overcome? Let me just say it like this. Overcoming is not giving in to what should be resisted. How's that? 
It's not giving in to what should be, as a Christian, resisted. Remember the Bible said, resist the devil and he'll flee from it. Well, we should resist that. When he comes around, we should resist him. If we're not taught, if we haven't paid attention, we won't know if it's a devil or not. When things come into our lives, we don't know any better. I mean, we would, but a lot of Christians don't. And therefore, they get snared, taken captive by the devil at his will. They go through life so miserable and so dismal. They seem to have no joy and hope. Their joy is when they get paid or when they get to go on a vacation or something. But there's just so little of anything. But according to the light that you have, according to what you're convicted of, that's the only basis for your faith. Whatever light, whatever word you've received in your heart that you're assured of and convicted of, that's what you resist. Anything that doesn't go along with that, anything beside that, you resist it. You may not have all the light that God's going to give you yet, and I'm sure you don't. You may not even be convicted about all the things you've heard yet to the point where you won't do anything else. But that's what faith is. Faith is when you're so convicted about something that you're fully assured that if God said it, you're going to resist it. That if God said it, that's what you're going to use to resist the enemy. Take the word assurance. Assurance is a word that, that describes faith. It is a word that tells us really how, how the message of faith works. Assurance is knowing within yourself the certainty of something. Now, that means then that not everybody is really sure or convinced that what the Bible says is really going to work because they don't have that assurance. Now, they like to say they do. They confess the Bible. They speak what the Bible says, but they're not really convinced he's going to do it. And how many of you all know that you can confess anything you want to, but if you don't have that in your heart, it ain't going to work. It just doesn't work like that. Turn to Hebrews 11.1. 1. The definition the Bible gives of faith gives it like, like this. He said that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. Now, substance. Now, I don't want to hurry through this, and I don't want to labor it either. But substance is our word assurance. It's faith is the assurance, the certainty that you have something that God has said, even though you can't see it yet, evidence of things not seen. I don't feel it. I don't see it. I don't hear it. I don't taste it. My five senses cannot verify anything yet. But in my heart, I am convinced, persuaded, confident, and sure that it's going to work for me. I'm willing to act like it's going to work, live like it's going to work in face of all the opposition in the world. I'm going to get persecuted for this. I'm going to get talked about for this. But I'm so convinced that God will do it that somewhere along the line, it'll happen. I have no problem. I mean, it's going to work. About your eyes, your feet, body, any, anything you can believe. 
you have to be assured of it. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's something that underlies visible conditions and guarantees future possession. That's what faith is. It's something I have about something that hasn't happened that I can't see that causes me to be convinced that I have it. Therefore, I don't have to keep asking for it anymore. I don't have to wonder when it's going to work. I just know that God who promised it is faithful and that if he said it, he'll do it. If he spoke it, he'll make it good. I'm convinced of that. Now, without this, what I just said, without that, I will not overcome. I'll talk about overcoming. I'll begin this journey. But when the, when the fiery trial gets pretty hot and fiery, and I'm not real sure I can make it, and I'm, I'm not convinced that uh, I, I'll start saying things like, well, I may not have this right. I, I better, uh, maybe this is, uh, I don't know. You begin to back away a little bit. That's probably very ordinary and happens quite a bit. And then there's that person who is just so certain about something that people wonder about, but they're certain that if God said it, God's going to do it. Therefore, I believe I have received it. You know what Jesus taught? When you pray, believe. Believe that you have received. That's why you don't have to keep laboring trying to get it. Asking. Prayer meetings. It's, oh, God. Because when you pray, if you believe you have it or you have received it, you don't have to keep asking for it because you have received it by faith. Faith is the assurance, the title deed. One translation says faith is like a title deed. The man standing on the property sleeping in the house isn't the owner. The owner is the one that's got a piece of paper that legally entitles him to that house. That's a title deed. Faith is like that. Faith is a very title deed to the things that you expect to happen. The word hope for means expect. That's the way we live. This is why those who overcome, overcome. I know this will work. I know the devil will flee. I know he'll let go of this and he'll, I know he will. That's just the way it works. But, well, well, let me read a couple of translations for you. One, one translator says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Okay. Another translation says, faith makes us sure of what we hope for. That's good. Think of that. Faith, if you have it, is what makes you sure that you have what hasn't happened. Again, now we're talking about how we're supposed to live. Didn't Jesus say the just shall live by faith? There are some things I can quote you the Bible about. Am I convinced in my heart that absolutely sure that God's going to do it? I don't know or not. What about a haircut? Let me ask you, well, could God cut hair? Could he? Then why did you go barbershop and get yours cut? You want us to be a bunch of hippies yet? No, no. 
I'm just saying there's a lot of things that, you know, God could do. I don't have the assurance in my heart that he's going to do that for me. I mean, if I had it to, I guess he would. There's just some things. How about uh, gas in my car? Could he do that? So I never had to put gas in my car again. Praise God, I can avoid that bill. And then you'll have to come get me. Because I'm not convinced that it'll work like that for me. It could, but I'm not convinced it will. So what are we convinced of? What are you convinced of? What are your convictions? See, faith is just not talking the Bible. It's not Bible talk. It's just not saying what the Bible said. You can do that. That's a good exercise. But faith is having the assurance that what it says is going to work and happen for you. Some of us can go further with that than others can. But we all have to go somewhere with it because everybody who calls himself a Christian is going to face adversity, the devil, and difficulty. You're not privileged to draw back and make excuses. You have no license to confess you can't or it won't work. You can't do that because that's the opposite of overcoming. An overcomer, before you get in the battle, remember Jesus said, before you engage your enemy, you better sit down first and what? Count the cost. Hey, this could last a while. This could get pretty bad, get pretty big. It could. I mean, who knows? Are you really sure you'd stay with this all the way through? You might honestly say, because this is part that God sees, I don't know. Well, then why don't you sit down and deal with it? And before you jump up and grab the plow and head for the hills and the mountains, why don't you make sure that you're convinced that this is going to work for me and I won't turn back? Why don't you do that? How many of you know it's not wrong to count the cost? Do you have enough, he said in Luke 14, do you have enough of what it takes to deal with this? God's promised it. I mean, what things ever you desire. Do you have it? Are you sure he'll do it for you? You can't do it because somebody else did it and they were successful, therefore, to work for you. It doesn't work like that. You'll get in the boat and go out in the water somewhere and jump out of the boat and see how far you can walk. But Peter could walk on the sea, couldn't he? Once anyway. Because another time when he got in the water, he dove in. So there are times that there's a certain special unction or anointing or ability that comes. Maybe it's a gift of faith when when inside you cannot fail. You know you cannot fail. This cannot but work. But you need to know, we all need to locate ourselves because none of us is going to overcome all these things in life and stand like a warrior approved of God at the end unless we're convinced before the battle starts that we've got convinced in our heart, certain that what we've got to work. There's no problem with God. Oh, God could do that. Of course he could. Is there anything he can't do that's... Right. I mean, it's like you draw a square circle. Well, you know, that's not even, that is ignorant. Yeah, I agree with you. But there's nothing impossible with God. 
So how much of all of that, when it comes to you living this life in Shelbyville, Kentucky, or wherever you folks are, how much of all of this are you sure of in your life? My walk of faith is not designed to please you. My walk of faith is designed to please whom? God. And one thing the devil fears is having the assurance in my heart that he must leave. And if I resist him, he will flee from me. Oh, the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. We're told whom resist. In the faith, steadfast. That means unmovable like a chair. We'll not move away. We're standing right here. We're not going anywhere because I'm sure that God will do what he said. I'm not going to try to make this work. I'm convinced before the battle starts, it's going to work. Listen to this translation, the Mofat translation. Now, faith means that we are confident of what we hope for. Another translation says, now, faith is the confident expectation of things hoped for. So all these different translations, there's many more than these. I just selected these. All of them define faith, <coughs> the kind of faith that's going to bring us joy. That It's the kind of faith that defines those Christians who are settled in what they believe. They're sure at least about something that this is going to work for me and I refuse to turn back. And they hold fast. And when the devil comes to test that, and God will make sure that we're tested, when the enemy comes in, God will stand with you. No temptation is taking you, but such is a common man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able. He'll not only provide a way of escape, but he'll be pleased with us because we overcame. Let me say it like this. Faith gives reality to things that you believe. Faith gives reality to things that are hoped for. The, the health the money, the lost child, whatever it is. Faith gives reality to things that you cannot see, cannot hear, cannot feel, and so on and so forth. Now, with assurance, with assurance comes, comes the certainty of God's promise that it's going to work for me. This is why we walk around in peace. Aren't you troubled by the things going on in the world? No, I really, I'm really not. I am really not troubled by that. Well, did you know there are terrorists in the world? I'm convinced there are terrorists everywhere. There's one that walks around all the time. I can't see him, but I've met him. He's, he's in all of those. Everybody that's killing people, he's in them. Yeah, I know who he is. I also know where he is. I also know where I am. The Bible says I'm seated in heavenly places. I'm in heavenly places with the, the Lord. And that means that the devil would be under, under my feet. That's supposed to encourage me to know that God did not save me to be defeated in this life. God did not save me to languish and barely just grumble through this life. Turn to Deuteronomy 28. 
Deuteronomy chapter 28 tells us the reason why people have to have insurance and why people have to have something besides God. 2866. Now he's describing in verse 66 those people uh, who are cursed. A curse is on. This whole thing begins in verse 15. But it shall come to pass if you will not hearken unto the words of the Lord. That's where our faith comes from. Faith comes by hearing. Now, if you won't hearken to God's way, you'll have to live apart from God's way. And no matter how much you talk about God's way, it won't work for you if if you don't live according to it. You're going to live a very frustrated life. Eventually, you'll quit. Or you'll join some something that doesn't challenge you anymore. There's no conviction in it. You'll find you a place where you can just quietly sit through a service without any conviction, without any addition to what you've already got. You're just, uh, just doing your thing. But if you will heed and give ear to what God is saying, then you'll be blessed. The first 14 verses say that in Deuteronomy 28. But he ends chapter 28 and verse 66 telling us, as I see it, the way it is with so many people. Verse 66, he said, And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee. And not only that, he said, And thou shalt fear day and night, and shall have none assurance of thy life. Now, you don't want to live like that. Your parents probably did. We were comfortable when things were all right, things were going our way when we all felt good. And the first time things didn't start going our way, that's when we start talking negative. Uh Uh-oh, it won't, it can't, I'll bet, oh boy. And we start talking that way. And when things start going wrong and you cannot believe God because he said your life shall hang in what? Verse 66 said thy life shall hang in doubt before thee. Doesn't that mean that you'll be uncertain about your life? Faith is being certain. Doubt is being uncertain. When I'm sure about something, I'm believing it. When I'm not sure about something, and I'm, I'm essentially doubting it. I'm not convinced about my life. Jesus said, take no thought for your life. Are you sure of that? Are you convinced you don't have to take thought for your life? Oh, you have to bathe it and feed it and paint it and all that. But if you're a man, please don't do that. Please don't do that. Please don't wear earrings and get tattoos. Not here anyway. But imagine your life shall hang in doubt. I don't know how many people are in hospitals. That's one of my least favorite trips. But there are so many sad and dejected and helpless people in hospitals whose only hope is an appeal, a procedure, or a miracle. Death is so big and their life is the funeral and then it's how, what, oh, this going to cost and graves and so I, There's just no joy in people's lives because there's a great void of darkness in so many people's life because what God has to say as an alternative to that in his word 
They didn't receive it. When we were young and frisky and busy and going along and children were growing, we didn't pay attention. We didn't listen. Now that you get older and you get grounded in what you don't believe, you get settled in what you don't believe, and God isn't adding anything to your life. If you didn't want it, he'll let you go. If you want to be given up to those things, all right. If you don't want, if you don't want to have God in all your thoughts, you don't like to retain God in your knowledge, you don't want him to be the way and the source of your life, all right, then live on your way. Live the way the world gives you to live, and there's no hope in it. Without hope and without God in this present world. And you think about the people in situations like that who languish. They fear day and night, he said in verse 66. They fear all the time. They talk about fears. Talk shows talk about fear. The news media is fearful. People are scared of so many. They're scared of when it gets dark, scared of driving a certain place, scared of what something might cause, scared you might lose a job, scared a certain kind of fear which causes a doubtful reaction. I mean, faith is an act, isn't it? What doubt is too. When you believe God, you step forward. When you doubt, you step back. Doubt is such a terrible, terrible thing because it's the opposite of faith. That the Bible says a man that doubts, let him not re- think that he shall receive anything from God. Anything. All those things we're trying to get, we've been preaching about, and all the notes you've taken, it won't work. When you doubt, it won't. All of that's for believers. And all the opposition to that, that's what you overcome. Jesus said, you can overcome. All the resources of heaven are given to you. He said, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. Go ye therefore, didn't he? And these signs shall follow you if you believe. And before you go anywhere, you go with the confident assurance that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All I have to do is listen to God and hear his voice. Doesn't mean I can just go heal anybody because healing power is mine. Jesus didn't do that. I mean, it wasn't long after Jesus died that we talk about here Peter and John at a gate called Beautiful and a man begging there. How many times did Jesus walk past that man? He didn't stop and try to heal everybody. Bible says in his own hometown, he couldn't. Jesus. God in the flesh, in his own hometown, he could there do no mighty work except lay his hands on a few sick folk and heal them. You know what the next verse says? And he marveled at their unbelief. They handcuffed God by their choices. All the things that God did that brought the miracles, that brought great glory and praise to him, it happened through us who believe him, and when we don't believe him, none of that goes to God. Doubt's a horrible thing. Faith is such a wonderful thing. No wonder the Bible says that without faith, you can't please God. You can't. So without the assurance of what God said is where, without really having that assurance in your heart, about the best we can do is languish and live a life full of questions. Mostly negative. Why not? How come? That's not fair. Well, why me? 
Well, it just seems like I don't know about that. Well, I've heard all about that, but I don't know about that. One translation says about having none assurance of thy life in verse 66. One translation says, and nothing in life will be certain. What if I got up in the morning and started my day without the assurance of anything? How could I not but be fearful? Afraid you're going to catch a disease. Something's going around. People stay in their house because they're afraid. There's just so much fear, so much uncertainty, and so much despair. And you read about God, you sit in church, and the preacher says some wonderful things. About, well, in verse chapter 28, the first 14 verses, and you hear that and you think, well, why doesn't it work for me? Well, it's pretty clear as you read through there why it doesn't work for whoever it doesn't work for. But it sure isn't God's fault. We have 24 hours of every day. We've got time every evening or every morning, everybody in this room does, to read, study, talk, pray, spend a little time with the Lord. Every one of us have time. We can be in church or we can find something else to do that's more important. That's the choice we make. That's why some people don't do so well and others who are willing to put everything aside and are committed to hearing the word, that's why they do well. You say, well, they don't have any money. Would, wouldn't you like to have their joy and peace? What would you rather have, the, the $160 million lottery or joy and peace all the time? The lottery. You talk about signing up for misery. You just signed up for it. Oh, brother. Not only now, but in eternity. You say, well, look at all the people I could help. What if you gave somebody $100,000 and they left the Lord and got sinful, started gambling or running around on their wives or their husbands? That money loosed them from other things, so they started. You're the cause of it. Your money. Your money did that. Or you give money to a church that preaches doubt and unbelief. You did that. You, you encouraged it. Let me tell you something. You don't need to win the lottery. Oh, I'll build you a new building. We can get it other ways besides that. Amen? Amen. Now go to Hebrews 11. We were there. Now let's go back there to Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Assurance. It conveys the notion of certitude. Remember one time we spoke about certitude? C-E-R-T-I-T-U-D-E. Certitude. It really is a word. It really is a word, and, and, and it has to do with the idea of having freedom from doubt, having assurance. That's what certitude would, would mean. Now, Hebrews eleven six. For without faith it is impossible to what? Please God. Can you understand at least a little bit tonight before we finish this verse? that the only way we can be pleasing to God is by ascribing to, committing ourselves to his word as a way of life. And God promises us that if you live my way, the devil will flee from you because my way will teach you how to deal with him. 
My way will teach you how to deal with fear and uncertainty. I've got a word for that. Bible's got verses of Scripture about that, about diseases. And at any stage, there's verses of Scripture about that. You don't have to have it. You can have what the Bible says. That should be our motivation to get in there and receive all of that because these promises that God made for our good, as I said a while ago, this is what brings glory to God. The testimony you give that you were down and out and praise God, he delivered you and raised you up off the bed of affliction. Whoo, praise God. We all go, <laughs> praise the Lord. We all do that to some degree. Some kind of go, but some, you know, praise the Lord. You're not a sad and dejected soul if you're walking with the Lord. If you're assured that God is going to do what he said, I promise you, you are not in a slothful, slumbering, indifferent, sad, I don't know about all that. You're not like that. You are not like that because that is not the way that God's people should be. You have been overcome by something when you live like that. But when you're tempted to be like that and you say, no, sir, I'm not going to let that happen in my life. And you rise up, you face the opposition, a devil you can't see, a feeling that you have, whatever it is, dejection, sadness, sorrow, whatever comes. And you say, I'm not going to express that. In the face of this, I'm going to count this all joy. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to praise the Lord. Amen. I'm not going to jump up and down and act like the village idiot, but I'm going, to, I'm going to say praise the Lord. Amen. You see, in Hebrews 11, 6, he says, without faith, without the assurance that God will do for you what he said he would do, you can't please God. Well, how do I get this assurance? How do, how do I get it? Faith comes, doesn't it? Faith comes how? By hearing. By hearing the word of God. You've got to have an ear for it. And I'll promise you this, if you're saved, God wants you to hear his word. He does. He wants you to hear it. He wants you to hold on to it and hold fast to it because that's the only thing that he honors. But notice he said two things in Hebrews here. Hebrews eleven six. He said, he that cometh to God must believe two things. Now, we assume everybody believes the first one, believes that God is. But a closer investigation of that is to say that God is means that he has reality. Though you can't see God, doesn't mean he's not. Though you haven't heard his voice, doesn't mean he doesn't have one. He is what he says he is because the Bible says so. The question is, do you believe the Bible? Oh, that book, that yeah, that's been copied, recopied. Yeah, all, all of that. That's what they say in schools of higher thought. Trying to get you to question whether or not what you say you believe is really believable. The liberals say this. Well, you know, the Bible, the Bible contains the Word of God. It's in there which means it's not really all of it's not the word of God. Man had a lot to do with what is in there. 
Now, God isn't going to honor the word of a man, but he will honor his own word. Our problem is we have to decipher what is of God and what isn't. Well, that's nonsense. For one thing, I'm not smart enough to do that, and I doubt that you are either. God chose us because we're simple. We're not complicated. All right, I'll dismiss you. I'm not. I don't want to be complicated. I want to approach this book like a little child. Take it as a word of God. If God said it, that's what it means. And I don't, I'm not going to try to explain it away. I'm not going to try to add to it or take from it. I'm not going to go from the left of it to the right of it. I'm just going to say, if God said it, it's true. Just like your children would say that about you. There's an age that children are. You say the moon's made out of cheese. They'll go tell their classmates. They'll fight over it. I'll see you at recess. I'm going to put this in your eye because it is made out of cheese. But you see, how can we please God if the word doesn't come to us as absolutely sure? Now, I may have to work on that because faith comes by hearing. God has to speak to me about some things, and as he does, this word drops in my heart until the day it does. I say, you know what? Houston, this is going to work. This is really going to work. I am convinced, I am sure and I'm confident that this is going to work. Amen. And I'm going to prove that I believe that. I'm going to live like it's true. I'm going to live like it's true. My friends will think I am certified nuts because I'm acting like something is true that they can't see. The first time I claimed a better used car. A lot of my friends in the church thought I'd gone, I'd, you know, I dove off a cliff and hit a rock. Nobody can believe that, but I did. Where did I get that kind of faith? From reading, talking to you about it. It became a part of my life. Next thing you know, I thought, well, you certainly God could give me a better used car. I can't find car in the Bible, let alone used. But it's in my heart. Jesus said, what things soever you desire. So I started believing for it. I just smiled. Told my daddy, I got, a, I got another car. Where is it? I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. He thought that was strange. See, the Catholics didn't teach that. My daddy, being a Catholic, he didn't, he didn't know what I was talking about. But it was in my heart. I didn't know anybody else in the church I was in that believed like that. But it didn't matter. It's the revelation that God put in my heart about what he will do for me, and I became sure of it. I wrestled with some other things that I'm sure of today. It wasn't then, but I am now. Because given time, you keep reading, you keep studying, God gives more. To him that hath shall more be given. That's the way it works with the Lord. Church never was a place to come down and park your carcass and Tune in with your ear for a while and see what this guy's got saying, then go home and forget what you heard. That's not, that's not Christianity. There is a divine and holy reason that God brought us here. And that's to have another opportunity to hear his word and you make a choice of dealing with it. Because when you do, God will get in there with you and bring things to pass and you'll begin to see things the way he wants you to. Remember we used a verse of scripture last week that 1 John chapter 4 and verse 5, I know you all remember it, the victory that over 
comes the world. Have y'all ever heard that? Who's ever heard that? Seven, eight, nine of you. All right. The victory that overcometh the world is what? It's not my faith for you. It's not my faith for my children. The victory that overcomes that world out there is even your faith. The faith you have. Well, it ain't much. Well, the Bible said it's big enough for you to wrestle and overcome anything that comes in your life. Anything. For God is faithful who will not. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able, but will with the temptation, he's involved in it. He will make sure that it's not bigger than you are. He will make you bigger than the temptation. He'll provide a way of escape so that you can bear up under it. That means to endure it. That's what he does. And the only way you do this is by faith. And the victory that overcomes the world is even our faith. And I'm sure, I'm sure you know that. Now, in light of this, we're going to go back to joy. In light of all of this, what was the joy that was set before Jesus? I said a while ago, it was our salvation, and that's true. I want you to go to Isaiah 53 for a moment. What if I said it like this? Jesus was assured of God's promise to him and that he would finish the work that he had started and that God would fulfill the work that Jesus did, that he would make it work, that God was behind it. Jesus knew that. And because of that, because he was personally convinced that what he was doing was what God wanted him to do, and it was so vital and so necessary and would greatly please God to sacrifice his son to save multitudes. He endured the cross. Let's go to Isaiah 53. Nothing could stop him. Not a thing. Nothing could stop him. Verse 4. Let's don't be in a hurry with this. Surely he, Jesus, hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. That's what you get when you act like that. They didn't know who he was. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, out of these verses, there was a doctrine a, back in the 70s that Jesus died spiritually. And the reason that Jesus died spiritually was because of our sins. That he took our sins upon himself and became as we were, as sinful people. And yet, because sin is always a moral choice, your sin cannot become my sin. Now, your sin can deserve a penalty, death. And you may stand in just a just judgment of God is that because of sin, you must die. For the wages of sin is death. 
Therefore, we must all die. There's no way we can escape this legally before God. God cannot turn his back and be holy. He cannot dismiss your close life and, and have judgment against sin. God judges sin for what it is. It's that which turns you away from God. Your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and your God, he said in Isaiah 59. So what, what did Jesus do with the sin thing? He took your place in punishment. Kenneth, Houston, you're all sins, have a sentence of death on you. But look, no, there is no debate. Sin is sin. This is a legal law. But I only drove two miles an hour over. This. I don't care. You broke the law. You're guilty. Next. Hey, have a heart. There's no mercy in the law. The law is a document proclaiming what is right. It does not bend for sin or lawbreakers. If you sin, if you broke one law, you're guilty of the whole thing. There's nothing in the law that says if you'll do this or do that, you won't be judged. Nope. And then one step forward and he said to all of this mass of cursed souls, all these people that are doomed in their sins, I will take their punishment for them. How can I? Because I'm sinless. I have no sin. Now, I will be the Lamb of God. Wasn't he a Lamb of God? Then John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He wasn't a sinner. He stood in the place of sinners in judgment. Or as the Bible calls it, he was God's sin offering. Are you with me? He was not a sinner. He was a sin offering. He was willing to stand for the punishment of all those who were guilty before God and take their punishment for them. Let's go on. Verse 10 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul a what for sin? For what for sin? Offering for sin. He was not a sinner. My sins are mine. Your sins are yours. They condemn both of us. We're both guilty. We cannot do anything about it. I don't know why I'm hollering, but it's okay. Jesus comes along and he says, I am sent by God to redeem you. And this is how I will do it. It will be through death. Just as in type, the animals at the sacrifice at the tabernacle were killed and blood was spilt. The death of a, an innocent sheep or a goat was a substitute for your life. I will make an atonement for you. See, they believe in substitutionary atonement just like we do. We're all guilty, but there was somebody. God sent his lamb into the world. And his lamb went to the altar, which is a cross. And there he shed his blood, and God was willing to forgive us if we'll believe. It's a wonderful story. Nobody could love you like that. Nobody you know would even care about your sinful state like that. But God did, because if he left us alone, the whole world is judged. Nobody will be saved. But notice, go on. Follow me again. 
Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Notice, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord for his son to die this way because... When he did die this way, God not only would raise him up from the dead to show us that he was perfect and holy and death couldn't hold him, but that his death would be the salvation for your souls. That's the only way it's going to work. Verse 11, he shall see the travail of his soul. We're in here tonight as part of that. And shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous service justify many for he shall bear... Not be the cause of, but he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I was one of those transgressors. I was one of those lost people. And Jesus died for me. And now think of this. His death provided the opportunity for all of us to be saved, to escape that eternal torment, a sinner's hell. All of us have an opportunity to escape that solely because of what Jesus did. Many years ago, we didn't understand it. We esteemed him smitten of God and afflicted. It's what we thought, but we didn't know. Now that we look back, God shows us this is what Jesus did. This is the way he did it. This is how awful it was. So you can see the price it took to save your sorry, sinful souls. And think of it, all the sin in our life, when God sends godly sorrow into your life, so you can be saved, God removes all your sins. He justifies you, just as if I'd never sinned. He relieves you of the debt of eternal death. You're free. Finally, another point. Our joy, his joy was doing it. Our joy is living with gratitude, serving God with gratitude for what Jesus did. I don't know if we do that or not. I don't know. I don't know how many Christians truly, deep down inside, appreciate what God did to save us. I don't even know how often that thought comes to Christian people. We see our selfishness. We see that. We're selfish. We grumble. We argue. We complain. We hear his word is preached for too long. Hey, that's too much. We don't want to hear that much. I know you don't do that, but people do. I've had them send me little notes one time in a meeting, slipped, slid a note over there where I was that said, time's up. I knew I wasn't coming back, so you know what I did? I kept it going. Just kept it going. Well, see, to me, in in my flawed way, I think, the gall of you to ask me to share the Word of God, and then you tell me it's too much. Who do you think you are? I didn't say that. I'm not that bold. But you just do what you got to do. They don't have to invite me back, and they didn't. 
I'm just glad I'm here. I'm glad that I've been redeemed. I'm glad I can get up in the morning and know. I mean, there's a lot of word that's in my heart and the well has got a lot in it. And I can think of a lot of reasons this morning why I can say, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Peace, joy, no fear. Hallelujah. Well, what if you didn't have this and didn't have that? You know, if I didn't have anything, I still got Christ. Luke writes, don't rejoice because the devil is subject to you. Rejoice because your name's in heaven. When the trumpet sounds and when the Lord comes and how this all will end and eternity begins, you get to be there forever. And you don't have to stand before a just and holy God who will give you a righteous sentence for your rejection of him. You don't have to hear that because... While you were tender and young, God softened your heart, sent God to heart. We call it grace. God graciously gave to you a message that you received. Not everybody received it, but you did. You know why? Because God loves you. And so what happens to us if we realize what I just said? If you here in this meeting tonight realize that? You've got to serve the Lord with joy. He gave you something. Well, it doesn't look like... What does faith do? Faith is what? Faith is substance and evidence. Faith is the assurance of things not seen. Do you have the assurance of heaven? If you died right now, would you be in heaven? If you went tonight, would you be there tomorrow? Or would you be in limbo out there dreading that great white throne of judgment or the God appearing to you? Oh, I don't take that lightly. I know that God keeps records. I know there's a reason the Bible says we serve him with fear and trembling. Because God is not somebody to take lightly or to make excuses with. God is not some good old buddy who wants to hang out with you. I heard a preacher say that the other day. God wants to hang out with us. Don't even get me started on that. God is awesome and holy. Our joy is grateful service to God. We don't back off. We don't give up. God wouldn't want us to. Some of the things that come our way are hard and difficult. We face it. We shoulder our load. We arm ourselves with his word and we press on towards a high mark. That's how we overcome. God knows that your efforts will prevail because he's involved. You're not going to die halfway through it. You're not going to lose something. So well, what if you die? Well, Revelation 2.10, Church of Philadelphia, he says some of you are going to be put in prison and you're going to die. Hold fast. You get a reward in heaven. Praise God. Well, people look at that and they oh, no. Wait a minute. Your life is not yours. Were we not purchased? Are we not called his purchased possession? Did he not buy me with his blood? Did I not respond to him and say, save me, Lord? When I gave him rights to my life, who am I to complain? No wonder Zechariah 5 is a curse comes on people that complain. I have no right to complain. Who didn't fare? Who says it's not fair? Would you rather be lost? 
No. We're going to endure to the end. We're going to have the faith of Jesus without fear. The same way that he lived, the same way he overcame, is the same way that we're going to overcome also. Listen to these words from the Psalms. The king, and us too, the king shall joy in thy strength, O God, and in thy salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice. Thou hast given him his heart's desire and hast not withholden the request of his lips. That sounds like God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The king and us in Shevavut will greatly rejoice in the Lord. He will not hold back from us all the good things he's promised. Or would you turn to one more verse, John fifteen eleven? What a wonderful verse. Because it has to do with the word. These things have I spoken unto you. Wow, this is worth thinking about. These things in John 15 have I spoken unto you. Why? That my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. You know, I could talk, give commentary about that. Think about that. Jesus said, the joy that I have, I guess it's the joy of God. Heavenly joy, isn't it? I'm giving you that. That it might remain, be active, and evident in your life. Amen. That's what he said. So that your joy, while you're in this world with tribulation and woe and rejection and all of that, so that your joy can be full. What the psalmist say in Psalm 611? In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there's a reward, our treasures forevermore. It's just a matter of us recognizing the worth and the value of the price that Jesus paid so that worthless people like us could be saved. There was nothing about me that was worth saving. I had no worth. I was lost. God saved me, put something inside of me, put his spirit inside of me, began to reveal himself to me, gave me a promise of heaven, eternal life, victory, peace, joy. And he's, then I've come to this verse, and Nehemiah 8 said, The joy of the Lord. Nehemiah 8, 10, the joy of the Lord is my what? Where did I get this joy? John 15, 11, where did I get this joy? He gave it to me, didn't he? Now, if God gave me joy, should I not be joyful? The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, is mighty. He shall save, shall rejoice over thee with joy, with joy. That's the way God feels about you as his redeemed people. You're his treasure. We're the people that he's given all of his grace to. Faith and hope and, and, and missions and directions and, and, and enthusiasm and joy. Don't ever listen to that and fall asleep in the middle of it. If you do. You're a marked 
soul. Because there's nothing about what Jesus said that is sorrowful or anything else. So, in closing with this verse, when you encounter difficulties in this life that's promised to you, James 1, 2 says, count it, count it all joy. Take advantage of the opportunity to stand your ground, put a smile on your face, and overcome. That's the way it works. Amen? Bow your head with me for a minute. Father, in the name of Jesus, we give you thanks tonight for your word, for the power that you put in it, for the promises that you've attached to it. We thank you that even though in our feeble efforts we come so short that in spite of us, you're long-suffering, that you really do care about us, that your love expands even beyond our failures, that you care about us, Lord, when we don't deserve to be cared for, that you're bringing and doing a work in us. Oh, may we just realize every day of our lives what a pleasure it is to be one of your children. What a joy it is to know that one day God will cause us to hear his coming. The bridegroom cometh. Help us to be ready for that, to live in anticipation of it, because that's what faith is, Lord. And we thank you for the privilege of being like that and of doing that in Jesus' name. Amen.